Baker, Biodiversity Specialist at Balfour Beatty, and we're here at the Spring Conference for SIU. Um, Julia, tell me a little bit about what biodiversity net gain means for people who don't know. Well, in, in simple terms, it's when a development leaves biodiversity in a measurable better state than before. So, um, I work for Balfour Beatty, we're a contractor, I work in the major projects part of our business, so we tend to come in, we build some big infrastructure, um, and then we'll go again. So we've got to make sure that biodiversity is better than when we found it. So in simple terms, it's just leaving it in a better state than we found it. Okay, so we're talking about a better state and obviously improving on the baseline. So you've developed some best practice principles to try and help people along to that result. So tell me a little bit more about how you came to those conclusions and your new guidance, what, what that's going to do for them. Yeah, it's, it's been extraordinary. So industries really looked at biodiversity net gain in such an enthusiastic and inspiring way. But within industry, we need benchmarks. You know, we need, we need standards, we need guidelines, um, not just for biodiversity net gain, but you know, for all the various environmental and sustainability elements that we do. So when people were starting to think and talk about biodiversity net gain, um, it was great that our three professional bodies, the Chartered Institute, um, IEMA and Syria really came together and I was lucky to work with them to develop our own set of good practice principles. So we wanted something that if people are talking about biodiversity net gain, this is what good looks like. And there's 10 principles published in 2016 to provide that foundation and to provide consistency, um, you know, and a way forward for industry that we can hold ourselves into account and really measure and make sure that um, you know it's, it's meaningful at the end of the day. Um, those principles were fairly high level and it's only a two, three page document. Um, so afterwards it was a question of, well, how are people actually going to implement the principles? And how can they be achieved in practice? And earlier this year we've published guidance that really go into the details about, well, if you're looking at the various good practice means, um, what's the advice about implementing them in a proportionate and pragmatic way? So you mentioned baselines. Um, one of the most important things is to set a very clear and measurable baseline, because that's what you're going to compare biodiversity net gain against. And a lot of that is doing what industry already does in terms of following the Chartered Institute guidelines on ecological assessments that have very clear um, standards about setting biodiversity baselines for a project. The difference with biodiversity net gain is that we use that information and then we also measure it. So we can um, look at whether there has been a measurable improvement at the end of the project. That's really interesting in terms of being able to measure and have something a set of metrics that people have got accessible now because obviously, as you say, some of it's been done before, but a lot of this is very, very new. And what was really interesting on your talk today was the idea of the scale of development. So you spoke about specific technical notes that would help people on smaller projects. And we see a lot of small-scale development and a lot of this slips through the planning net as well. So. There's a little less scrutiny, I suppose, in smaller-scale development. So what do you think the future might be for these principles when applied to the really much smaller or medium-sized developments? Oh, it's, it's a great question, and it's, it's been fantastic. The biodiversity net gain has been you know, really taken up by industry, but it's very much within the big players. 
and the big players tend to have the ecological consultants you know, tend to be able to have resources to think through and throughout it so a lot of the questions we get is well, how is this going to work you know if you're a single unit house builder or you know, sort of the really small developments or even developments that don't really have a big impact on biodiversity you know you're expecting them to suddenly create lots of woodland so the there's a technical note too in the guidance um, I can send you the link um, that is just for small-scale developments okay. with those little impacts on biodiversity. It gives advice on a very simplified, basic way of measuring net gains. So you don't need a fancy metric, you don't need an ecological consultant, but you are doing something in terms of measuring the outcomes, which is important. Um, it also gives advice on um, very pragmatic ways to boost biodiversity. And that moves away from just, you know, the very simple, oh, we'll put up a bat box and that's good enough, isn't it? You know, just to give it a little bit more meaning and to actually improve the biodiversity specific to your site. So it is our challenge now within industry to move biodiversity net gain from the big players and to make it proportional, pragmatic, interesting, worthwhile for those small-scale developers. And viable, I suppose, as well. Exactly, yeah. That's the huge issue we come across. Um, so what do you think the role of engineered solutions might be in all this? Because I think to make a scheme viable, we often see that developers need to use more multifunctional ways of dealing with the landscape. So, you know, it's not, you can't just do tree planting or just do sods anymore. Things have to be brought in tandem, I suppose. Absolutely, and there's some really interesting work in green infrastructure and looking at integrating, um, you know, sort of green aspects into a very engineered environment. There's some, there's some great work on um, sort of canals, especially, um, and um, urban areas such as, you know, the rain gardens, suds, um, all those different kind of aspects. Um, and even that there's a whole lot of range of uh, wildflower planting. Uh, the Olympic Park's a great example of that, you know, of really integrating biodiversity within what is a very heavily used now public park. Um, so it's certainly not just you know, expecting hectares of, of woodland to be created, but it's looking at what industry does incredibly well, is, is being inspiring you know, from an engineering point of view. It just takes A, the willpower to do that, mm -hmm. B, the interest by us all within industry to work together. And I mean, I'm guilty of it. I think too often we work in our little silos where it takes engineers, landscape ecologists, ecologists, master planners, EIA coordinators, everyone around the table working on this. Um, and then I, in, I think it's, it's a really exciting future ahead. So we get asked a lot of questions about, so once we've done this, you know, developers will say, how do we maintain this? How do we manage it? How do we monitor what these solutions that we've spent so much money on, what, you know, what's going to happen to those in 25, 30 years? Um, and we've heard a lot of talk today about ensuring that we actually see these things through for a decent amount of time after they're implemented because, and you also said at a previous Westminster briefing that you can't just do it and then say, I've done it. There has to be something that follows on from that. So what do you think might be the best way forward to ensure that that happens? I think this is, this is a good question and it's not just about biodiversity net gain. I mean, for ages in industry we've had protected species licences that are meant to be monitored and are meant to be reported back on Natural England and, you know, we know that that's been fairly... Um, 
not as rigorously applied as it should have been. So I love the way that Biodiversity Net Gain is shining a light on this issue. That, you know, it's not a new issue, it's been a question for ages. Um, the thing for us is right up front in the target cost of a scheme, it needs to be built in. And often, um, as Balfour Beatty, you know, sometimes we come very late to a project because we're the contractors, but sometimes we come early into what's called the buildability assessment, which is quite an early stage. And we're brought in just to assess the buildability you know, of the scheme and make sure that we can physically build it on site. And that often feeds into the target cost of the project. And if you miss it from the target cost, you will always struggle. But if it's in the target cost, if it has its ring fence funding, that won't get taken away when you know the project runs overruns or anything like that. Um, and that is a clear um, account of who's responsible at what stage, then it will just follow through. I mean, we design bridges for 50, 100 years. Yeah, you design know. life's an important thing. It's, yeah. it's, it's all there for the grey stuff and the hard stuff. Oh, yes. We just need to do exactly what we do for that stuff for biodiversity. It's, you know, it's not rocket science. No, it's not rocket science. And I think we saw from Worcestershire County Council today, you know, how they can use policy to drive these kind of things forward. And I do a lot of work with local authorities, so I'm wondering what's your advice to them in terms of, they've got this new toolkit almost, they've got government behind them, but how do they actually see that this happens from a policy perspective? It's quite, there's quite a lot of autonomy in local plans, isn't there? And there's quite a lot of fragmentation across the country. Do you think this new legislation might help to bring that together or put it to the forefront maybe? I really hope so. I mean, I, local authorities don't have to wait for biodiversity net gain to become mandatory because the revised national planning policy framework last year gives them um, enough authority to stipulate biodiversity net gain now. So they can already do it, and many of them are, which is really exciting. I think it's such an important discussion to have because it comes down to resources and expertise within local authorities who are facing you know, budget cuts after budget cuts. Not all of them have ecologists, for instance. And I think there's a, there's a real role there for industry to work with local planning authorities, to work with NGOs, and to help formulate that policy. Um, because then everything comes together. You know, we can really apply the mitigation hierarchy up front by safeguarding areas of you know, really highly valued biodiversity. Um, and then we can support what net gain could look like you know, at a landscape level. Um, you know, given the fact that there might be this new road or this new railway or a new housing development, um, bringing on board local NGOs who have you know amazing conservation knowledge. Um, but I think it's it's I worry that there's going to be too much expectation on local authorities without the support, without the resources. And I think a way through that is a collaboration, and then b making sure. I mean, people have talked about the funding for biodiversity net gain to also include maybe some you know additional support you know for that policy making stage. Um, we'll have to see what what comes when biodiversity net gain is mandatory. But we're certainly working on big projects that span several local authorities. So we've held a workshop and got them all in the room at the same time. That's the best one and said, how can we do it on this one scheme, given that it comes in your patch, and in your patch, and in your patch. So the, I've really learned about the power of collaboration can, can you know, transform what seems to be a very tricky issue 
into something that's really meaningful on site. And also there's a lot about data and understanding the, the evidence base that we're using, isn't there? Because when we work across local authority boundaries or we're doing the SOD scheme, a lot of them have very disparate data sets. So it's very hard to take it to a, a larger scale and to scale up your intervention because you're not entirely sure whether these data sets match up. So I wonder if you've found that working across local authority boundaries sometimes that some will have much better data sets than others and sometimes you're having to plug the gap almost before you get started. Yes, I think sometimes. I think local record centres um, are definitely such a key resource in this um, and it's looking at how we can support you know, what they do to make it a bit more um, consistent and coherent. Because sometimes it's not the fact that there's no particular species being recorded there it's just that no one's gone and done a survey there you know they can always only collect data and what people send to them in that ways so i think there's some really interesting work regardless of that game being done within local um, record centers anyway that i think can only benefit the biodiversity net gain approach and part of that comes down to that collaborative piece with local planning authorities you know looking at where um, net gain should be and what it should look like in the authorities and part of it is you know very much the role of developers if we do have these large schemes we need to be responsible for making sure our baselines and our, our assessments are based on good robust survey data that delivers a biodiversity net gain design. I have one final question we do lots of highway schemes as part of our work and we heard a little bit from Worcestershire today about how they've done a few, um, a few projects with highways and larger infrastructure projects and a lot of the time we mostly see sort of new development examples. So what would you say about highway schemes? Is there a sort of particular nuance that, or a nuanced approach they might have to take? Because a lot of highways engineers are very uncomfortable with the idea of integrating green and blue infrastructure alongside obviously essential grey infrastructure. So what's your experience with that? Yeah, I think I think highways are really interesting case study because they are often the tra the the transport networks for our wildlife. You know, you, you look at um, all the green corridors, and it's not just roads; it's railways as well, spanning the country, and it stacks up to so many hectares. Which, yeah, as a green asset, it's just extraordinary. I think the first thing is to recognise that asset has to function for the highways and to recognise where biodiversity net gain is appropriate and where it's not. You know, it's not putting um, bird and bat boxes really close to motorways. Obviously, you know, completely unacceptable, but I have seen it. Um, and then to look at those areas where we can do some really interesting um, enhancements. And I mean, Highways England have a biodiversity plan. They set targets for no net loss and net gain. And they're also looking at increasing pollination and things like that. So there, there's certainly the potential there. But again, it comes down to, you know, on that individual project, if, for example, that's a new highways infrastructure scheme, has at the feasibility stage, has biodiversity net gain been set as a deliverable, which is just as important as the highways itself. So if you're building a new dual carriageway or you know, what a new bypass, whatever that might be, you hear the talk about the scheme in terms of reducing congestion, improving safety, right at that early stage, if there's the talk about biodiversity net gain, then we will find the solutions to make it work in practice. And that's, you know, where it's appropriate, where it's not appropriate, you know, just finding those niche solutions. So I think the takeaway is pretty much pragmatism and progress in tandem. Collaboration. And collaboration. Thanks ever so much, Julia, and uh, thank you very much for your time. Thank you.